Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. And welcome to this edition of the Legal Faceoff Podcast. I'm Ron Brown, filling in for Joe Brand, who's taken a couple of weeks off because of a scheduling conflict, but he will be back. Our hosts, Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. Our first guest is Paul Stefan. He's an expert on international business, international dispute resolution, and comparative law. Professor, nearly two weeks ago, Israel formally declared war on Hamas in Gaza after Hamas militants orchestrated a surprise assault on a number of Israeli cities bordering Gaza. Many believe that the heart of this conflict lies in the recognition of territorial claims. Tell us more about the laws and instruments at the heart of this conflict. Well, there are basically three stories, each with their own legal narratives. Uh, One story uh, that uh, is uh, the Israeli story is that uh, They were part of the Palestinian mandate. They obtained their independence. They were attacked on all sides in 1947, and the War of Independence created borders recognized by the United Nations. Uh, In 67 and 73, they were attacked again by their neighbors. Uh, Those neighbors, Jordan and Egypt, uh, disclaimed territorial uh, interests that they had in property that before 67 they controlled. And Israel feels that those two blocks are uh, up for grabs. There's no alternative state, and they haven't given uh, complete recognition to a Palestinian state. Uh, and then what it means that it's up for grabs is very controversial within Israel. Uh, very few countries uh, accept this narrative. Uh, the second narrative, the Palestinian one, is that the uh, UN decision was illegitimate. Uh, the Palestinians were still colonized people, uh, and that uh, Israel lacks any legitimate basis in spite of its membership in the United Nations, and that therefore the actions of the Palestinian people are to claim their homeland uh, surrendered by Jordan and Egypt, but now theirs. And they're involved in a prolonged informal armed conflict where there are no civilians, an important point. Uh, Again, uh, other than Iran, I can't think of a state that fully embraces that story. Uh, Some of the Palestinians do, not all by any means. Uh, And then there's the sort of down the middle of the road story that uh, Certainly people in the West uh, uh, believe, which is the 67 borders are the only internationally recognized borders. Uh, the status of uh, uh, the Gaza and the West Bank are to be negotiated, uh, understanding that probably the status quo will change as a result of negotiations. But uh, the only legitimate territorial claims for those recognized back in 48. 
Professor, some claim that from a legal perspective, part of the issue here is that Israel hasn't really been completely consistent in its approach over the years. Could you explain that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, looking at it politically for a second, before we delve into the law, we had a tradition for many years of a uh, labor government uh, reflecting the uh, socialist, uh, liberal democratic socialist values of, of Western Europe. Uh and very committed to international legitimacy. It really mattered to the governments in 67 and 73 that they were attacked, uh, not that they that they were not the aggressor. Uh, since the uh, 80s, we have had intermittent uh, uh, governments that are uh, populist, uh, heavily influenced by the significant uh, influx of Russian immigration. And with a less compromising, more nationalist, less legalistic approach to things. So uh, that has resulted uh, since uh, uh, Begun and then Sharon and now Netanyahu uh, positions that uh, fluctuate and are not completely consistent about the status of the occupied territories. So, Professor, turning to the legal aspects of this, what is the legal regime that addresses the conflict um, and the atrocities that are being committed, particularly against civilians? And what is the role of the International Criminal Court in all of this? So two points. Uh, first point, uh, where you start on the rules depends on which of the three stories you buy into. Uh, the, the sort of down the middle story that I think the United States, Europe, and our allies all agree on is that this is a conflict between a state and a uh, non-state actor for whom there is some state responsibility, that's to say, in some sense, Palestine uh, is an international actor, even if it doesn't have full sovereignty over its territory, and and that therefore the laws of war, as opposed to the law for just war, but the rules for conducting war applies, which requires uh, efforts to uh, not target civilians, not to use disproportionate violence, uh, uh, to uh, engage in fundamental acts of decency, such as not engaging in terrorism or hostage taking, uh, not engaging in indiscriminate attacks that have disproportionate risk of civilian casualties. Uh, and, you know, how you apply those principles varies a lot from where you stand. So even within the group that's sort of straight down the middle, there are varying perspectives and how much slack, for example, you're willing to cut Israel because of the structure of Hamas embedded and some believe deliberately embedded within a civilian population, uh, choosing to endanger the civil civilian population. Some groups uh Amnesty International says that doesn't matter. You have to protect civilians no matter what. Others would say, well, you can't uh, create extreme danger, but you have a right to protect yourself. The uh, Palestine, not Israel, is a party to the Rome Statute, which is the statute of the International Criminal Court. And uh, that means that agents of Palestine, and I think you could argue that Hamas as a political authority and part of Palestine uh, that certainly engages in organized violence is covered wherever it acts. 
and any acts by Israel on the territory of Palestine, including uh, Gaza, would be covered by the statute. So things that fit into the category of crimes against humanity and grave war crimes would fit. Uh, the word genocide is thrown around a lot. I don't think I'm uncomfortable using that because even though this is a uh, ethnically or racially inflected conflict, I, I don't think uh, it's hard to say this is about the extinction of a people, uh, the displacement of the people, perhaps, but not the murder of a people, which the crime of genocide under the Nazis was about. But certainly issues of grave war crimes, including disproportionate uh, civilian casualties and crimes against the humanity, such as torture, kidnapping, terrorism. Uh, the ICC does have jurisdiction over that. Whether it will exercise its jurisdiction is another matter. It has the power to conduct an investigation, and then it's an act of discretion how it will proceed. And that will be very problematic for reasons that I think are obvious to everyone. Professor, we've got about two minutes left. We appreciate you being on. Question, um, why should Israel abide by international law in this area uh, and the rules of engagement when they are defending themselves, after all, against what many would consider an unprovoked attack by a terrorist organization that continues to defy international law inherently by holding hostages and using them as human shields in Gaza? I mean, it seems like that Israel would be unilaterally disarming uh, if they are suddenly abiding by these rules that the other side is not abiding by. Can you explain it to our listeners and viewers why, sure. they, sh why they should follow up? Sure. So I, I think to cut to the chase uh, for Israel to disclaim the obligation to honor general principles of international law is to deny Israel's status as Israel. Uh, that is to say, that if they want to claim that they are no different than or no better than uh, Hamas, uh, I suppose they could, but I think that would deeply undermine Israel's identity, uh, history, and culture. And the rules of war are not reciprocal in the sense that you can retaliate against a state uh, uh, by uh, breaking your own obligations. Uh, the idea behind the law of war is there is a reckoning at the end of the conflict. Uh, and the international law expects and hopes for a reckoning for the uh, criminals from Hamas who did what they did. But for Israel to claim a shield to behave in a criminal fashion themselves, I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying uh, the logic of that argument uh, would really fly in the face of everything that Israel has stood for since 1947. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate having an opportunity to talk. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. 
In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, the U.S. Supreme Court is facing a set of new cases with this new term. And to discuss, we welcome back Gabe Roth, Executive Director of Fix the Court, an organization that advocates fixes to federal courts in favor of the American people. We welcome in, him in from Northern Virginia. He's got his Chicago roots, though. Gabe, thank you very much for joining us once again. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, welcome back. Uh, part of fixing the court is, of course, an ethics code, right? Something we've discussed several times and something that's been in the news uh, a lot over the last few weeks. Last week, um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett discussed the possibility of an ethics code. Remarkably, there is no ethics code for the highest court in the land. Let's let some of our listeners and viewers let that sink in for a second that you know the local circuit court judge has a set of codes and rules they have to abide by, but Clarence Thomas, judge, Justice Barrett don't. Putting that aside for a second, what did she say and what are your thoughts on one of the more, you know, um, conservative members perhaps um, uh, suggesting that there might be some ethics, uh, ethics codes coming up or ethics laws coming up? Yeah, she she said she said two things. One, she said uh, that she thought an ethics code for the Supreme Court would be, quote, a good idea, which was a little bit of a surprise because she hasn't gone that far uh, when asked about this in the past. Um, and. The second thing she said is that, which was, I think, a little more interesting, at least from my perspective, is that it was her view that the nine justices are doing what they all they can to follow uh, generally accepted ethics standards to the highest level. And if anyone has been paying attention to the news over the last six months now, if not longer, really, uh, we know that that's not the case, obviously, with justices accepting lavish trips and vacations and gifts. So you know, it's, it's, it's two things can be true at the same time. Uh, yes, it's a good idea that it's a, it's a, it's a good sign that justice Barrett is, is apparently pro ethics code, but it's a, it's a bad sign that she se- is seemingly oblivious as to her colleagues, uh, ethical lapses reported on of late. Yeah. Let's get into that really quickly. I mean, not only accepting these lavish gifts, but actually, you know, going on the offensive and writing op-ed pieces where you're defending that behavior and basically saying that, I know when to, you know, uh, get involved in cases and when not to. And even though I might be involved with a litigant and accepting gifts from that person, I can put all that aside and decide the case on its merits. Doesn't that fly directly in the face of basic conflicts law? I mean, if anyone everyone could say that, then there wouldn't be a need for these kind of ethics rules in the first place. Anyone could just say, yes, I accepted a fishing trip or a boat or an RV, but I can put that aside because I'm really smart. The federal law on this is very clear. It says a a judge, so a lower court judge and a Supreme Court justice shall disqualify himself when their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And you and I are reasonable people. And the idea that you are impartial when you have accepted a lavish fishing trip to Alaska or these male only retreats at a fancy resort in California when the, the benefactors in both cases, Alito in the former example, Thomas, uh, Thomas's benefactors in the, in the latter example, have cases before the Supreme Court. You can't be impartial. And that is what the law says. It it is a disqualification requirement. It's not a a question of, oh, well, maybe you should think about it and go to your colleagues and look at the codes. 
It's the reasonable person standard, and they are not following the standard. And unfortunately, currently and in, in, in our world, the only uh, way to fix that would be through, you know, impeachment and removal, which is not going to happen. So I think at the very least, having stronger ethics rules that it's not only the recusal rule, but also just saying justices should a not accept lavish gifts and b when they do accept travel from whoever they have to file the same types of reports that members of congress have file so at least there is some sort of so, so, some sort of oversight you know nothing is going to be perfect but there are many degrees above where we currently are that we should go and the fact that they're resisting it and republicans in congress are resisting that is kind of pathetic why is that because you know this issue as well as anyone why is it that an alito for example who at the end of the day, when he looks himself in the mirror, he has to know that this is a blatant violation of ethics. Do you think that he's choosing to act in the way that he is and Clarence Thomas and continuing to defend these actions? Do you think it's just a recognition of the reality that there's no will to change anything? There's no congressional power by the Democrats to change anything. Most Americans really don't care about this issue in the grand scheme of things, aside from people like you and me, Polls show that people really don't care about this issue so much. Um, why is it that there is no, uh, you know, movement and cry for these ethics rules that are so obviously needed? Sure. So I think it's two things. One is that if you look at the the issues we're sort of skirting around in terms of whether or not there should be recusals, these are cases that are very important to conservatives. We're talking about cases like Moore versus U.S., which is going to be dis- uh, um, argued in December which is about rewriting the tax code in a way that favors conservative interests. There's a case uh, uh, called Loper versus Romeda, uh, Romando, which is about reducing the impacts of the regulatory state. So everything from the EPA to the to the CDC to any other sort of uh, the, the and, and then, then there's another case related to that on the Commu- uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So you're talking about cases where there are conflicted justices and issues that are very important to the billionaires who are flying them around the country. So I think that's the first thing is that the just those justices are not going to bow out of cases that they were put on the court to decide. The second thing is that, you know, unfortunately, or maybe I mean, maybe I think fortunately, largely, but unfortunately for my job. There is not a justice on the left who has flouted ethics rules to the same degree that a Thomas, an Alito, or even a Scalia has. There just isn't, right? I mean, maybe you could go back to Abe Fortas, who was nominated by Johnson, and and Fortas and Johnson stayed in touch when he was on the court, and Fortas was eventually forced to resign because he was accepting money from this shady financier that was uh, being investigated by the SEC. I mean, but that happened like over 50 years ago. In the modern era, there has not been a justice on the left who has flouted ethics rules in the same manner as Scalia, Alito, and Thomas. So, yes, my job would be a lot easier. I'd get a lot more bills passed in Congress if we had an equal number of Republican appointees and an equal number of Democratic appointees who have flouted ethics laws. But since that's not the case, this is where everyone's just going back to their political priors and say, oh, it's not a problem with SCOTUS per se. It's just a problem with this one justice that you Democrats don't like. So that makes it harder to pass bills even though it's there's an obvious problem that's crying out for a solution. Gabe, I know one of your other platforms has been recently this trend of justices using uh, their own so-called expertise about policy and history to replace that of actual experts in those subject areas in deciding these cases. Again, we all understand that justices are generalists and they know a lot about a lot of different things and they have to be. 
On the other hand, you know, traditionally they would rely on the evidence and testimony of, of expert rather than putting blinders on and just using their own experience. What's what's this trend all about, and wh- how do we fix it? Yeah, I think that to me is is as I think you know most acutely in 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 both Dobbs and the abortion case and Bruin, the the recent gun case. Uh, you know, the justices are are I think having their policy preferences outstrip the basic. Uh, rules of judging, right? The idea that all of a sudden, and, and even you could even talk about cases like West Virginia EPA. So it's sort of three things. It's one, it's saying, you know, if on the West Virginia versus EPA case specifically, that talked about the extent to which um, uh, the EPA can regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And because the EPA was created at a time that climate change was not really thought of, the court is saying that it is a major question if the just, if uh, 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 Congress wanted the EPA to do this thing. Well, it is the bottom line is that the EPA is the experts. It's not the justices who are the experts on climate change. And Justice Kagan even said that in the oral arguments, like we're not the nine greatest experts on climate change up here. But it's but the justices are coming have come up with this doctrine called the major questions doctrine that basically allows it to sort of usurp its or or, or overstep its own authority and say we know better than the EPA on how to mitigate climate change or how to deal with climate change or really, in fact, how not to deal with climate change. Because it's not like the justices are going to be doing anything about it. And they're putting their own, quote unquote, expertise by creating this crazy doctrine above the EPAs. In cases like like Dobbs and Bruin, you know, we have Alito going to this whole long uh, treatise about the history of, of abortion laws and when when whether or not you know, it, it, abortion was illegal in this state and that state. And when criminalizing uh, uh, abortion occurred, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that he is an armchair historian and he is checking, cherry picking his history. He is cherry picking, OK, which, you know, maybe this state outlawed abortion in 1866, but another state had no laws on abortion uh, uh, the, in an entire history until Dobbs was overturned. So, you know, the idea that you're going to 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 do a, a a job essentially as a judge that is not your job right your judges are not historians and the similar thing happened in bruin talking about you know the extent to which new york can regulate its gun laws there were gun regulations all throughout american history but you know this state didn't have a gun law on this and that state didn't have a gun law on this to me it's it's less about you know uh, uh, it, to me it's about the justices deciding when and where to sort of put their thumbprint put their thumbs on the historical scales and 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 saying that these examples are more important than the other when in fact they should be looking at history as a whole and in better sense deferring to historians to really understand the impact of things like abortion guns and administrative regulations um rather than relying on their own internal instincts which we know are fallible Dave, quickly we couldn't get you out of here without talking about uh uh some trump news right um the uh, gag order that was imposed by Judge Shutkin yesterday re- resulted in predictably the former president alleging that his First Amendment uh, rights have been curtailed. We also uh, will probably deal with this issue of whether the ex-president can be prosecuted for at least partial acts that were conducted during his presidency. These are big constitutional issues that ultimately will probably make its way to the Supreme Court, given the current makeup, which is heavily in favor of conservatives, 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court. Which of these issues do you think gets to the Supremes first, and how do you think they'll roll? Wow. Um, that That's the... Uh, it's an easy one at you. On that, 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 that's a hard one. I think, I think you've got a lot of different possibilities 
Um, gosh, the grand. Okay, this got the. Ah. I, I, Rich, I honestly don't know. There's there's so many different areas of litigation that are currently ongoing. Um, you know, I th- I think that that we're also going to have litigation related to the 2024 election, which he is poised to be one of the main candidates in. So that you know, I, I mean, look, Chutkin and DC is trying to get the the trial done before the Republican National Convention. Does that mean that something from DC goes first because Eileen Cannon in Florida doesn't? doesn't really, you know, isn't working with uh, all alacrity. But then there's so many issues in Georgia because and we've got all these co-conspirators who have been indicted. The bottom line is I think SCOTUS is going to get several cracks at Trump between now and the end of next year, which comes first is, you know, remains to be seen, though. Again, that's Gabe Roth, executive director of Fix the Court. Find out more at fixthecourt.com. Gabe, thank you very much for the time and the insight. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Since 2008, the Biometric Information Privacy Act has been set to observe biometric identifiers by private entities. Here for the latest is James Wadekas, partner of Costello, GenX, and Wadekas. James, thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure, and thanks, Joe and Rich, for having me. Yeah, welcome. What is BIPA, and how does it affect employers in particular? Sure. So uh, BIPA is an acronym. Um, It stands for the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And it was a statute passed about 15 years ago. It was actually uh, an initiative that was led by the ACLU. And what it attempts to do is regulate a company's use and storage of biometric identifiers. And by that, I mean facial scans, thumbprints, retina eye patterns, iris scans, anything that would be uh, biological or unique to the individual. And Rich, just kind of going back, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when we had manual labor jobs, you would punch in on a time card what you'd have is rampant time card fraud. So Rich would clock in for Jim, Jim would clock in for Rich. And companies started making these machines in order to track time with biometric identifiers. And as that was happening, uh, the statute passed, uh, and that was in 2008. In terms of its effect on employers, it's draconian. So if you do not follow the law, it's $1,000 per negligent violation, $5,000 per reckless violation. And these are class actions, Rich. So if you have 40,000 class members, uh, it's pretty easy to see, you know, that number can add up really quick. So that's basically the history of it a little bit and its impact on employers. And the reason why this is so uh, such an area of, of litigiousness and the reason why there are so many regulations, of course, is because as opposed to a punch clock, you are now taking people's biometrics, their their health data. And that's a sensitive area, of course, because we've all seen examples of that being compromised and, um, you know, identity theft and, and all sorts of issues. So um, what do employers have to do to become compliant with BIPA? Sure. So um, first of all, they have to go to their employees and tell them we are taking this, we are collecting it, we are storing it. They have to tell them um, how they are storing it and for how long. 
And then most importantly, they have to obtain the employee's written consent. Um, I, I can tell you, I've handled dozens of these. The, the, the litigation involves around the lack of the written consent. So many companies, Rich, didn't know this statute was even on the books. They were doing this without consents. They get sued. We come in. We have them. Uh, we prepare a consent. All the employees sign them. And then they think they're good, but they're only good until that date moving forward. It doesn't take care of all of the violations uh, prior to the consent. But the gamut of the litigation riches around the lack of a written consent form. What kind of cases have you seen? Give us an example of uh, are these cases getting resolved before trial? Are they going to trial? Are they going up on appeal? What are some of those issues? Yeah, so 99.9% of them are being resolved, many of which with insurance money. Although recently, Rich, carriers are starting to wisen up and specifically exclude these types of claims in their policies. Um, the majority of them settle, have settled, at least the ones I've handled. One went to verdict uh, this year against the BNSF Railway. Uh, it was like a three-day jury trial in federal court in front of Judge Kennelly. I think the jury deliberated for an hour. There was a $228 million verdict against the railway. Um, and the judge overturned that verdict, set a new trial on damages, and the case settled last week. But I'm only aware of one case that actually went to verdict. $228 million. And how many were in that class? Do you know? There was 40,000 plus violations. So I don't know exactly um, the, the number of people in that class. I can surmise it's got to be north of 20,000 uh, people, but it was uh, 40,000 plus violations, many of which the jury found to be reckless violations, not just negligent violations. And that's where you get the $5,000 uh, per violation. Wow. So you mentioned coverage. I mean, are does a typical employer's coverage portfolio include uh, insurance for this type of loss? If you're asking me, yes. Um, if you're asking an insurance adjuster, no. Uh, I, I can tell you this. Um, we now know, Rich, the statute of limitations is five years. So that was um, promulgated by the Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court, about seven or eight months ago in the Tim's case. Um, that initially wasn't good because it made the class five years worth of people. But what we're starting to do, uh, Rich, is um, if the occurrence happened in a particular policy period, what we're able to do now is say, hey, insurance company, you have to go back to the prior four years and do a coverage analysis under those policies and what we're finding is that many of those policies were not uh, endorsed with BIPA exclusion. So we're having some success with that statute of limitations going back. But in terms of policies issued today on standard GL policies, Rich, they're excluded. Again, that's James Wadakis, partner of Costello, Genex, and Wadakis. Find out more at cgw-legal.com. James, thank you very much for the time and the insight today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Rich. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. 
Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to The Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. And it has been a cruel summer for some Swifties. They feel they deserve justice from certain ticket exchange companies. And today we have with us someone representing them, Jennifer Kinder, founder of Kinder Law. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us here today. A pleasure to be here. Just call Kinder, right? Not to be confused with a similar sounding TV lawyer, but just call Kinder, right? That's right. It's cheesy, but it works. Absolutely. It's awesome. So you've been on before, Jennifer, talking to us about uh, your lawsuit against Ticketmaster dealing with the what many consider exorbitant fees they're charging for Taylor Swift and other concerts. I just saw this morning that in this year, which is not yet over, the uh, touring industry saw an increase in sales of 22% over an already record year they had last year. So tell us what uh, the latest on the lawsuit and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, we've had some good news on the law front. Um, We've had a recent hearing last month where Ticketmaster was trying to force all of us into um, arbitration. They, in 2021, because of their greed, Uh, They decided that they would hire a new arbitration company called New Era Arbitration and force everyone. I I bet you don't know this, but when you log on to your Ticketmaster account, do you know that you agree to their terms of use? So you agree to their arbitration group, whatever happens with your ticket sales, whatever happens with your experience, you agree just by logging into your account to their terms of use. Well, the judge decided last month that even though he had upheld arbitration agreements um, in years past for Ticketmaster, that this new one, new era arbitration was so egregious and so unconscionable that he voided the arbitration agreement. So they have now appealed that ruling to the Ninth Circuit. So right now we're just in sort of a limbo phase while we wait for the Ninth Circuit in hopes, our belief is that the ruling will be upheld because uh, this judge has ruled in Ticketmaster's favor in all years past. But now because of such egregious behavior. And if you want to know about what you agree to with New Era Arbitration, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about what you agree to. But it's so egregious that the judge thought that there's no way we can uphold this. So he voided the contract. Well, explain to us, remind our listeners and our viewers, Jennifer, what you're trying, what your allegation is. What did Ticketmaster do wrong in, in their sale of these tickets and other uh, concerts? 
Well, the main allegations are that they're a monopoly and that they offer that they operate as a cartel in the United States, which is a legal antitrust term, that they operate essentially as a cartel, so they're antitrust violations. We have additional violations of misrepresentation, of fraud, and negligence, because that on the day of the Eras tour sale, the Ticketmaster purchased a pipeline in order to direct traffic through the sales that was too small for what they knew would participate in the sale. So they intentionally bought a software package that was too small so that fans and verified fans could not get through the system, thereby allowing bots and scalpers to come in the back door, get all these tickets. And by the time that our fans, uh, Taylor Swift fans, got through the queue, it was already a resale market. So we know there were already 10,000 tickets on the resale market before verified fans could even get through the queue. And what's their response to these allegations? Well, of course, they deny all of the allegations. uh, And that's where we are. What their what their MO is, is to delay and to stall. Uh, I think their first thought was they want to get through the entire concert. So it's, it's, you know, in the reflection and in the rearview mirrors where they want to be in terms of the actual Taylor Swift tour. Uh, What has helped the case um, is that she stays, you know, in the forefront and relevance and in society today with her uh, with her uh, relationships and then also with the movie. So we continue to push and they continue to delay. The, The big problem is, is that they're losing every time uh, they try to delay. You mentioned uh, her movie, right? She just set the record for all-time opening week movie sales for a concert film. Uh, She is, of course, in the spotlight now more than ever, given her relationship with Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey. Um, She is also beginning again her tour. She's resuming her tour, I believe, in Miami the next few weeks. Um, So probably no bigger star on the planet, perhaps, you know, in history at this moment. Does that additional notoriety um, and income that she's deriving, does that hurt or help your case? Well, there's no a bigger fan base that you don't want to piss off than Swifties. So, you know, by doing exactly what Ticketmaster did, it just fuels a fire because many of the, the individuals that are going to the movie um, were individuals that couldn't afford the tickets. So their only experience and their only, you know, ability to experience this live entertainment experience is through a movie. Um, And so it just fuels a fire because we stay angry, we stay mad, and we stay motivated. But you have no issue. To be clear, do you have? It sounds like you don't have an issue with artists uh, or their representatives, their legally their agents uh, from charging as much as possible, right? I mean, we are setting we are seeing record numbers uh, for artists with what they are charging for their uh, for the concert experience. You don't have an issue with that per se. Your issue, your allegation is that Ticketmaster went about selling their tickets in a way that wasn't in conformity with the law, correct? Well, that's correct. And Taylor Swift negotiated ticket prices to range from $49 to $499. If you bought a VIP package, that was a bit more in the $799 range. But that's not what we got. 
that's not the opportunities that we received. Our opportunities when you went through the queue was a $1,000 ticket or an $18,000 ticket or a $28,000 ticket. The $49 tickets were simply not available to verified fans on the day of the sale because Ticketmaster instituted vertical vertical pricing and all of the tricks of the trade that they have to make sure that the verified fan never bought a ticket for the, the price that Taylor Swift negotiated. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that just called the free market? I mean, isn't that just a, um, you know, an owner of a product deriving as much income as they can from something that is in increasingly limited supply? What's wrong with that? That's not free market. What was offered on uh, in November was nothing, would never resembled free market. Uh, gone are the days where you and I stand in line and our place in line ensures where we are and what's available to purchase a ticket. That's not what exists anymore. Standing in line and being in your place in line and purchasing a ticket that's available at that at your spot is not what is That's not what's happening in this country. What's happening is tickets are being released at certain numbers at certain times. They're purchasing packages that don't allow a free market system because there were, we know that there were 1 million people trying to buy tickets, but they couldn't get through the queue because of the way the system was rigged by Ticketmaster. So it's not free markets. It's a manipulation of a free market. And it's only to the benefit of someone who does absolutely provides no service for the fees and the prices that they charge. That's not free market. That's not what that's not what our founding fathers intended. That's not what they, you know, um, they contemplated. Um, and, and as a result, that's why we have antitrust rules in place for exactly this type of behavior. The only thing worse than pissing off Swifties is pissing off legal face-off viewers. They've been clamoring for more. Jennifer Kinder, we finally got her back. Again, you can find out more at justcallkinder.net. Jennifer, thank you very much for the time and the insight. Uh, Happy to be back. This portion of the podcast is called The Legal Grab Bag. I'm Ron Brown, filling in for regular host Joe Brand, who has a scheduling conflict for a couple of weeks. So for right now, I'm off the bench, and I'll be keeping his seat warm until he returns. Guests for this segment are Ashley Alvarez. She's just an attorney. And everybody knows him. You know him. You love him. He's your David Hochberg. He's all over WGM, right? Dave, tell us, tell our, remind our listeners a little bit about what you're doing on, on, uh, on the air here. Everything. I hear you all the time. Sure. Well, thank you for that. I'm, I'm a mortgage professional, licensed mortgage professional uh, during the week. And on the weekends, I host a show after House Smarts with Lou Manfredini on WGN called Home Swing of Chicago from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Saturday, like I said, after Lou on WGN Radio. And one of the great Chicago voices. I think, you know, if you, if you, if you want an actual live Chicago voice, uh, Dave's your guy because it's authentically Chicago. But with that being said, team, we're going to jump into Ron, our first topic, which is always Trump Watch. As long as President, ex President Trump is out there, he's going to provide us with legal content. And like breaking news, we weren't going to cover this on the list, but breaking news is uh, what an hour ago I'm reading that Trump has actually been fined for violating the gag order. We were going to discuss the gag order that was only placed on him a few days ago. And what a shocker. Uh, he has been fined $5,000 uh, 
um, for violating a gag order not to speak about any members of the court staff. Raise your hand if you thought that Trump would abide by this gag order. Raise your hand. Shocked, Tina, by the uh, violation. I mean, it's amazing. He's been warned over and over again. This is uh, Arthur Engoron, who, uh, in his order Friday today, said that he's going to uh, fine Trump. And, you know, uh, the first step is the fine. But the ultimate uh, punishment for violating a, a gag order is imprisonment. I mean, this judge has the ability to throw Trump in jail. And, you know, Trump is not one that's going to take this lightly. He's going to continue. Does anyone think that Trump is now going to say, oh, I've learned my lesson. This $5,000 is going to impact me to follow this order uh, and, and stop. I mean, I don't I don't I, I think it's part of his plan to be in jail. Right. To as much notoriety, as much fundraising as he made from the gag order. I mean, from the um, mugshot. Imagine he's going to double that when he's behind bars. So this is all part of the Trump plan. But good for the judge for following through with what he said. And by the way, this is not the only judge. The federal court judge is going to do the same thing when he continues to talk about her and threaten members of the court. So I think it's a good move. Well, I agree with you, Rich. I also agree with you, though, that this is not going to impact Trump's behavior at all. If anything, he's going to have more people taking pictures. It'll be a very compelling shot if he's behind bars. It's going to create merchandising. Who knows? Maybe he'll raise another 10 million from the sales of like 50,000 T-shirts and mugs and pens and who knows what else, shower curtains. I, I, I don't think he's going to stop. And I think it's just, as you said, it's a brilliantly constructed narrative um, that is in parallel with everything that's going on that's part of the campaign. Dave, what's your thought on this? Uh, you can't be surprised, right? No, I'm not surprised. I, I thought that you should have an over-under, like three <laughs> days or 72 hours. You'd probably, you'd probably take, you'd probably figure out what the line is and, and bet, and bet, uh, but he bet against himself and for himself. He, you know, the shocking thing for me is as a mortgage broker and not an attorney like you guys are, if it was anybody else who pulled this, who pulled the same type of stuff in a courtroom, how much rope would a judge have given any other person without the last name of Trump, who used to be president of the United States? This guy's gotten so much leeway and it just blows me away. Anybody else would probably been a fine sooner or thrown in jail sooner. Would you guys agree with that? hundred percent. And, you know, we talk about it actually kind of flippantly and finally, but this is serious stuff. We see more than ever people taking these words and acting upon them. Right. I mean, to shooting, yeah, shooting family members of judges to showing up on their doorsteps to, you know, taking all these threats literally. So it's a good move. But I want to turn to the other really important Trump legal news that, again, not surprising, I think, but given who this was kind of surprising, you know, Sidney Powell, the infamous release the Kraken uh, attorney, who is a member of Trump's inner circle, who was in the you know Oval Office during that infamous scene uh, where they were advocating uh, overturning the election, has, guess what, flipped, right? She was one of the most ardent supporters of Trump. And now she has uh, flipped and has agreed to write a letter of apology to the people of Georgia. And also, importantly, testify without any barrier against Trump. That couldn't be more important. Again, any one of these stories, if this was like regular life before Trump, it would be the most significant legal story of all time. The fact that one of his co-conspirators who is in the room when it happened is going to now testify against Trump is hugely important. And again, this is the woman who said, you know, we're going to release the Kraken. We're going to release all this evidence. I mean, 
a total, you know, uh, a total wackadoodle, as many have said, and, and she's going to testify. So I can't wait for that to happen. And Rich, also uh, a second defendant in that case, Kenneth uh, Cheesebro or Chesbro, yeah. has also flipped, and he says that he has accepted a plea deal, uh, uh, a plea deal as well. So, right before the trial. Listen, uh, and first of all, can we get a consensus as whether it's Cheeseboro or Chesbro at some point? Maybe Let's it's tomato, agree. tomato. <laughs> Is it nuclear or nuclear? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, Ashley, it's the oldest trick in the prosecutor's briefcase, right? Go charge as many people as possible and then go for the low hanging fruit and get them to flip. It, it, it works and it's working now beautifully. We see it. Uh, we see it at the local level. We see it at the federal level. So I think um, it's nothing new. I, I think me personally, I'm relieved that he's finally because I didn't think it was possible to actually find him. I mean, I didn't think that there was consequential um, results that would ever respond to to Trump in any capacity. He felt almost like this this thing that we couldn't touch. I pay more in taxes than Trump will ever pay. So like, finally, Trump is getting. Some five thousand dollars is nearly not enough. I'm sure it's it's a walk in the park for him, a slap on the wrist. But uh, it was nice to know that there is a consequence for him. Finally, <laughs> in, in some kind of damaging, actual damaging way. And and remember, Ron. I mean, Cheeseboro is the brilliant legal mind who asked for a speedy trial. So the fact that the judge is going to hold him to that, and the fact that he has that trial date coming up, obviously added to his incentive to flip. It was a brilliant legal strategy. Well, there was some uh, uh, discussion that with uh, with Powell flipping that that was going to be the first domino and that the others were going to fall, knowing that, hey, there's someone out there who's going to testify against us. We better get on board. Right, right. So there may be more. Absolutely. Can I ask you guys a legal question from from the misdemeanor charges and writing a letter for the for the things that they did to get 60 months of probation for trying to flip to do all the, I mean, for like fixing an election and turning over an election and writing a um, sorry letter, is that typical that you see in these type of cases? Again, I'm not I mean, an attorney. You mean, is it typical in the many times that a president has tried to steal an election in the history of our democracy, right? No, I mean, the whole point is that who knows? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems light, but again, you have to go for the big fish, right? It's a typical mafia prosecution where you give a better deal. I mean, Listen, think of all the mafia movies you've seen where they go, they they give a killer, someone who's actually committed murder, they give him a slap on the wrist because he's going to testify against the Don. It's the same principle here. So you might not be thrilled that they're going to get slapped on the wrist. Better to go after the big fish, the 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 Don. Don Do they get their law license pulled by pulling this? Are they done being lawyers then? Oh, 100 percent Well, we saw yes. that with we saw with Giuliani, right? Giuliani's been revoked in uh New York. In New York. Florida. Right. So that's the least of their problems. They're never going to practice law. Maybe he'll law go again. somewhere else and practice law. Maybe he'll, you know, try to be in Idaho or something. Yeah. I was thinking Idaho. I don't know why, but I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I think that's where he's going. <laughs> okay, our next topic, uh, some anti-Israeli comments is prompting uh, some potential employers from rescinding job offers. Tina? Yeah, so on the heels of Israel declaring war almost a couple of weeks ago, news broke that a number of prominent law firms began to rescind offers to law students upon graduation. So the first of these firms was Winston and Strawn, who last week rescinded a job offer to a former summer associate who was an NYU law student who wrote in a student bar association online publication that Israel bears full responsibility 
for Hamas's deadly attack in Israel. In a statement, Winston said that the former Summer Associates comments profoundly conflict with the values of the firm and that the firm stands in solidarity with Israel and condemns Hamas's acts. While Winston didn't raise the name of the student in their um, press release, it later became known that it was the president of NYU Student Bar Association who had posted that message. And NYU's law school dean likewise went on record to say that this message is not in alignment with the school um, and that it doesn't speak on behalf of its leadership. Winston's not the only law firm that's made this move this week. Davis Polk in New York rescinded job offers to three students from Harvard and Columbia who led school organizations that signed on to an open letter criticizing Israel after the attack. Davis Polk chairman, um, very similar to Winston, said that um, these statements are contrary to the firm's values and that they concluded that rescinding these offers was appropriate to ensure an inclusive and safe environment. Harvard in particular has been hit with heavy backlash after dozens of student groups there signed on to a letter which blamed Israel as entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Rich, we've seen stories like this before where people just do stupid things, particularly on social media. And, you know, these law firms, what's interesting is that Davis Polk said that they're going to further investigate this and that they reserve the right to change their mind if they decide after the investigation that the students have uh, reasonable explanations for the statements that they made. But, um, you know, this is really tough stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's also the Berkeley law professor who wrote an op-ed saying, don't hire my anti-Semitic students. Love that guy. I mean, listen, uh, I hope these law firms uh, maintain their position and don't fall victim to the woke backlash that has. Uh, yeah, it's you could say whatever you want in this country. You have the benefit of the First Amendment, which a lot of these countries in the Middle East don't afford their citizens. But uh, you don't have a right to a law firm job. You know, there's no constitutional uh, right to get uh, a job at Winston. So these are private employers and they have the right to enforce a code of conduct that they believe in and, and good for them that they have. Um, uh, you know, these these protesters, let them protest and let them support the terrorists, but let them do so, um, you know, without employment. That's my position. I certainly would not hire any of them. And, you know, I liken it to uh, hiring a member of the clan. You know, if you had a Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard, was applying for a job with you. They have the right to the First Amendment. Um, that's been established by the Supreme Court. I have the right not to hire them. And what what rational, reasonable employer would hire the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan? These people are even worse, in my opinion. So uh, I applaud these uh, these employers. Ashley, what's your what's your take on it? You know, I um, I think I might feel a little bit differently. I think that it is really important that people have uh, the right to. The First Amendment. I think that that's that is something that you should have the autonomy to to have belief systems. This is not a, a one. This is not a linear topic. This is a very nuanced topic, and so I think there's also a lot of things that you cannot just look at one thing and, and say this identifies the person. Or I mean, I I don't think that you should be held to certain things that you're saying. I do think when it is a Ku Klux Klan. That is something you're in. You're talking about something that has actually caused harm. Supporting or calling something that is harming somebody else—that's a totally different conversation. And I just think there needs to be 
attacking me for the first amendment. I think this is also a very nuanced conversation. I think we're going to, we're going to learn. And I wish that we, we did learn. I mean, the first time that I, I was exposed to Palestine, it was huge. And now it's very small. And we're seeing a lot of different things that, that really has been a result of, of, of us uh, support. And, and I have friends across the board that this is impacting and they also have, um, you know, even Wednesday night, we were talking about this and they, they cannot speak to the harm and the things that are going on. I think we've lost a lot of humanity in this moment. Um, it's very real. People are, are dying. People on across the board for something that I think should should not happen. I do not agree in supporting terrorist organizations whatsoever, but I think that there this is so nuanced to, to really hold this to somebody um, in this moment without having all those nuances on the table and, and to say that this is now your character and I'm not going to, I'm going to rescind it. I think you should have the ability to rescind a contract to rescind an employment opportunity. I agree with you, Rich, on that. But I think why is, is a little bothersome here. Okay. Dave, what's your thoughts? Is I it think nuance? it's a great learning lesson for these young men and women that uh, what they do and what they say, there's actions and reactions to their actions. So I think there's two sides of it, right? If you went out and said, I feel horrible for the innocent Palestinians that are being impacted by this by the Hamas attacks, okay, that's one, so am I, right? But you can't do, yeah, but when you're talking with Hamas, right? When you're talking about Hamas that killed 200 plus innocent, peace-loving, concert-going young people in the middle of a desert who had no chance to, to defend themselves, then send in murderers to stand on the roof of the, of the kibbutz, and then start throwing grenades and gunning people down in their cars. And as they're running out, because they had the point, you can't defend that. So when you and when you're Black Lives Matter Chicago and you post on your Facebook page that you support Palestinians and you're and you're and you put up a picture of a paraglider or a parachutist, um, it kind of sends the wrong message. So. You can support the Palestinian people, the innocent people, which I do. It's it's horrible what's happening to them. But I don't know if you stand with Hamas, it's like standing with a terrorist organization and a bunch of murderers because they are and what and their actions speak for themselves. So it's a great learning. Listen, I did a lot of dumb and stupid things when I was in college. Okay, and that's not, you know, the, the person who I am now, 56, almost 57 and you know, I don't want to be judged with, you know, what I was and what I did when I was in my 20s either. But, you know, to support a a murderous um, organization like Hamas, and as opposed to supporting the innocent Palestinian people, those individuals, and, and like I think Rich said about, or it might have been Tina, about the, about the KKK, right? You, you know, you had the unmasking of KKK, and, and it's the same type of thing, right? There's no yeah, but when it comes to talk in my professional and personal opinion when you're talking about Hamas. There's no like, yeah, but no, they came in and killed over a thousand innocent people. And because of their actions uh, almost two weeks ago, we're in the middle of this mess that's even a bigger mess now. So here we are, right? If you do something silly, it might cost you your job. And that's what it did for those individuals. Yeah. Did they support, sorry, this is a clarification because I, I, I was under the belief that they had supported Palestine and Palestinian people in this moment I, was was it an actual support for Hamas? 
Well, they're blaming Israel. Uh, they're saying that they're saying that the violence that's going yeah. on in the, uh, yeah. in the mid- Middle East is uh, all because of Israel's actions, which is a despicable thing to say, right? So, I mean, listen, you might have a different opinion. That's okay. People have different opinions, but the point is, these employers are private employers. They have the right to do what they want. And you know, if 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 someone doesn't like it, if these people don't like it, then shut the hell up. But stand by your actions. You can't speak out, uh, you know, a certain way and want to speak out in favor of what many consider abject terrorism, worse than 9-11 in some ways, and then also expect the benefit of a job. No way. Say what you want. We're in a free country. But as yeah, the NYU student, yeah, the NYU student said that Israel bears full responsibility yeah. for Hamas's attack. I mean, I, I just I, I can't even wrap my head around that personally. I mean, it's to say that Israel is responsible for a terrorist organization's attack. It, it, it just is not. It, it does not. I, I can't. And right, burning right. babies, yeah. chopping the heads off of people, and killing people in their sleep, and smoking the them out of bomb shelters. I mean, and the point is, say it. Say it all day long. Say it as loud as you want. It's better to be heard. I'd rather know those people than yeah. give them that job and then let them reap the benefits of the bounty of a Winston job. No, say your piece. Say it loud, and then deal with the repercussions. That's how the free market works. So, Rich, our next topic is uh, the latest on the lawsuits involving real estate commissions. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge uh, settlement, $55 million uh, involving REMAX, the largest brokerage in the country. We're going to throw it right to the master of this topic, the expert, Dave Hawker. What's this all about? This is a huge settlement. Give our listeners and viewers some insight on this. I I lost my mind when I heard this because, I mean, ever since Mr. Wheel created the wheel, Realtors, uh, sellers, realtors have been sharing their commission with the buying realtors. It's nothing new. Um, everybody knows that that's the way it is. And to expect home buyers to pay their buyers, realtors commission, it, it's not realistic because the number one barrier to buying a home as a mortgage professional, 23 years of experience, is for first-time home buyers to come up with enough money for a down payment and closing costs. And when the selling realtor is signing the listing agreement, everybody knows that the 6% or 5% that's negotiated at the time of the sale is being shared with the buying realtor to attract buying realtors into that home to show that home so it could be sold. So when I read this, I'm just like, this is why attorneys get bad names, right? They they found something. I don't understand who's being hurt in this. I don't understand. And and the this was filed in Kansas City, right? A huge market for condos, right? Can somebody that sold a condo in Kansas City from because we talked about it on my show, and Stephen A. Leahy, the attorney, you know, did a little dig. I'm like, hey, d- dig into this because I'm about ready to lose my mind on when we start the show on this. I don't understand it. And I, I still don't understand it. You know, you got a paycheck from Remax because Remax just wanted this to go away. You had a couple other big firms getting ready to write checks just to make this go away. And I don't understand why this is even an issue and why these big real estate companies are writing checks and being held hostage. I'll throw it to the attorneys because, you know, I got an 18 on my ACT and never went to law school, but I don't get it. Well, I mean, Tina, the allegation was that the uh, the process is anti-competitive because the members are required to post their listings on these 
multiple listing services and follow the guidance. But I mean, that that just seems to be part of the process that's always been in place. I don't know why it's now suddenly anti-competitive. Yeah, Rich. I mean, I've got a number of clients in the real estate industry um, and it's a very... Like many of the topics we discuss on this show, it's not linear. There are a number of different facets to this, but it's definitely, as Dave mentioned, there are a number of different potential consequences to this, including, um, you know, we're already in a not a good market. I mean, we've all seen the headlines over the last few days about how it's a soft market, tough market. Um, there are many who speculate this is not going to help at all, especially for first time buyers. Um, who already are in challenging circumstances trying to buy real estate. Um, not really quite sure how this is going to help those folks. And frankly, even people who already own homes, when you have interest rates being what they are, complicated dynamics here that and a lot of consequences if this moves forward with um, other defendants beyond those who have agreed to settle out. Ron, you could uh, ask you, we'll skip you here just for time. We're going to skip one of you for each topic. So if it's okay, we'll skip you here. We'll edit out this portion. Uh, but Ron, yeah, we can move to the next topic. Okay. Uh, our next topic is there's a judge out in Oklahoma who's in a little bit of trouble for not being able to keep her hands off her phones during a trial. Rich? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we covered a story uh, recently. This is an Oklahoma judge, as you mentioned, who was sending 500 texts to her bailiff during a murder trial, including messages mocking the prosecutor, talking about the fact that the prosecutor was sweating through his jacket uh, during questioning. She was saying, why does he have baby hands? Uh, the text described the defense attorney as awesome. And can I clap for her during the argument? Uh, she texted a laughing emoji to the bailiff, made a reference, according to the uh, complaint, to one of the attorney's genitals. Um, this was a trial, Tina, involving someone who was uh, on trial and eventually convicted of second-degree manslaughter. Uh, so serious stuff. He was sentenced, he pled guilty and sentenced to 25 years uh, in jail. And despite all that, we have a judge who is treating this like a joke. Um, so, you know, very disturbing, obviously. And hopefully, uh, as a result of this, the message will be sent to others. It is really disturbing in a number of different ways. I mean, first of all, there had already been press cover coverage about this judge and its repeated behavior by her. Second of all, clearly she's not paying attention to the trial. She's you know more focused on her phone. I mean, it's not just five or 10 or 50 or 100 or even 250 texts. We're talking about 500 texts. Like, did she pay attention to anything at all? Um, and the problem is, as Dave mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, lawyers, reputations, et cetera. It's like, you know, this is the kind of stuff that gives lawyers a bad name is, you know, especially when you look at the judicial system and the fact that judges are supposed to exhibit exemplary behavior. And this is this is somebody who unfortunately does not reflect well in the judicial system or the profession as a whole. Ashley, what's even more remarkable, and it's well stated, Tina, what's even more remarkable, Ashley, is that when questioned by the Judicial Council or the Council on Judicial Complaints, the governing body for judges, rather than just take responsibility and take the ale and say, you know what, any reasonable person would find what I did reprehensible. I lost my mind. I will never do it again. What did she say? Speaking, Dave, of lack of responsibility, she said, oh, these could have waited. Not that the comments mentioning whether a juror was wearing a wig 
mentioning whether one of them had teeth. Nothing of those were wrong, but I just couldn't wait it until the end of the trial. I mean, man, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, this is this this is something that I have personally experienced. And as a young attorney, um, I I will just say it was in California, and I remember just having to like throw football references out because this one judge was like watching watching actual games during trials over Fourth Amendment constitutional violations. Or I was like, this could go to the Supreme Court, and like you are literally watching what is on on your phone. So I think it's something that is such an ex- example. Um, moving forward, we have really lost a, a degree of like professionalism. I think in, in many respects, we see this at the city level, right? I've, I've recently, you know, I, that was my former work. I would see people at city council in the middle of hearing things that were very important and they would have to vote on and they were texting in the middle of meetings. I mean, we, we really have lost decorum. And so I hope we get it back. Um, these are especially in the courtroom over something that is so, this is a mistrial to me. Um, in many respects. And I think that it's going to open up a, a floodgate of other cases that maybe should be looked further into to see how they were actually, um, if they were given justice and due process in the way that, that the system is supposed to do. Dave, already, you know, as someone who tries cases before juries already, you know, anyone knows that people don't like to serve on a jury. They look for any excuse. I had a jury trial a month ago. You should have heard, heard the wacky excuses. The judge said, if you've got an excuse, bring me a note. It was like, Posted notes. It was like writing on the back of their hands. Every note was coming in for people not to serve on the jury. If I'm a jury in Oklahoma, juror in Oklahoma and I hear this, like, why would I devote two weeks of my life to this when the judge is treating it like a joke and insulting my weight and my hair and my teeth? Come on. I, it, just, it just blows me away that the attorneys are supposed to be held at a certain level and the judges at a greater level. And this lady completely, just, and I'm sure she's not the only one. It's like you said when you were in California. Ashley, you know, I, I don't see how that's even possible and, and how that's even tolerated and how there's not a quicker hook to get these judges and, and, and these attorneys out from doing what they're doing. That's, you know, as a as again, as a non-attorney who's never been to law school, I just don't get it. It's just unprofessional. If you did it in my profession, they'd pull your license because you're not representing your client. You have a fiduciary responsibility to represent the borrower to make sure you're doing everything that's right. Or else you get, you know, you get your NMLS license lifted, so or fined or both. So it's ridiculous. Okay, our next topic. Everybody knows Elon Musk has a lot of money. He's one of the richest persons in the world. But now he says, after trying to buy, well, when he did buy Twitter, that his lawyers actually overcharged him. Yeah, I mean, no one's crying for Elon Musk, right? But uh, the allegation is that he was overcharged not by a couple of bucks. Uh, Dave, but by, uh, I don't know, $90 million. He says that uh, Wachtell, which is a big, you know, big firm, um, it was his firm prior to, which was Twitter's firm prior to the acquisition, racked up $90 million. This is my favorite part of the story, Dave, that it was last minute legal bills, you know, like, uh, you know, as if you're like uh, walking out of uh, Jewel and you see some last minute items you want to grab. It's the legal equivalent of adding $90 million. Um he, uh, the the lawsuit says that while no one was watching the store, Wachtell arranged to line its pockets with funds from the company cash register while the hands were being turned over. Um, and they're seeking uh, repayment of the excessive fees along with attorney's fees. Um, so, you know, listen, uh, lots of law firms are making money during this era of mergers and acquisitions. There's no problem with that. But 
I think Elon Musk was just trying to save a couple of bucks in what turned to be uh, what's turned out to be a, a dramatic uh, overpaying for his acquisition of then Twitter, now X. What are your thoughts? Well, well that's how I was going to ask you guys. It, it, are these charges are they are they are they realistic charges? Are they common charges? You know, ninety million dollars in that type of transaction. You know, somebody will look at it and go, "Man, that's a lot of money." But you guys are attorneys. You know, that could be. A typical fee, right? It might not sound ridiculous I mean, in your world. Ninety millions high. I mean, it's a forty-four billion dollar, you know, deal. So when you consider forty-four billion, what the attorney's fees are, ninety million is not outside of the realm of reason. But it's all, you know, what he's alleging is not too much the amount, although the amount jumps off the page. It's right. you know what they were doing for that and. There's no question that when you have a $44 billion deal, there's going to be excess. There's no question that attorneys are running wild with that. They're charging two grand an hour, right? And and they're just running wild. And Elon Musk is not looking at the bill. So there's some built-in excess and clients, I think, realize that. But I think what he's saying here is it just was, you know, to the extreme. So what's the ramifications for a client, right? Okay, so take Elon Musk out of it, right? You've got You've got uh, Tom and Sally own a business who are trying to sell their business to a bigger corporation. And it's not it's not 90 million, but it might be ninety thousand dollars. And to them, ninety thousand dollars is the same to Elon Musk as 90 million. Right. What type of pushback or rights do business owners who are not Elon Musk that 90 millions water off a duck's rear end? Right. It, it doesn't impact e- Elon that much. But, you know, how come the attorneys are doing it? And what's the ramification to protect the consumer who hired the attorney to represent them and not overcharge them? I mean, is it's there a any great, type it's of- a great no, it's a great question. And we don't have time to really give a, a full detailed answer. The bottom line is, you know, uh, the number one. Rem- why are they doing it? They're doing it because they want to make money. Unfortunately, sure. there are unethical business practices out there by law firms. They want to make as much money as possible. Again, to the point of this uh, allegation is, well, no one was minding the store. Um and the uh, what you have as leverage of the client is not to pay the bill. That's your first you know piece of leverage, and then litigate it and sue. Um, and at the end of the day, what you know if these allegations are true, this is more than just like skimming off the register. This is thievery. I mean, it's against the law, really. And we have seen Tina and I have covered on this show many examples of lawyers learning their uh, losing their license. In some cases, being criminally prosecuted, it's a crime. It's stealing. Sure. So over overbilling is not just some you know something we laugh about at the bar. It's stealing. And if someone calls them out and they prove it, then you know there's criminal and ethical and uh, licensure implications for all of it. For so it's a great question. I just found it ironic that attorneys are supposed to be, you know, they, they represent the bar and 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 hire ethically. It, you know, then anybody else, a typical person should be, and you just hear all these stories one after the other in this in the show of how they're, you know, just just twisting it and screwing people over like everybody else. I just, you know, it's just, it's just sad. You, you know, you hire an attorney to protect you because you think you're getting protected and, and they're out there trying to squeeze you for as much money as you can. So it's just buyer beware in any industry, I guess. For sure. Quickly say for the attorneys, like this is, we got bad people everywhere. So, you know, there's, there's a, it's really, that is why it's really important um, whenever you are working and getting into business with anybody, whether that be to protect you or, you know, to help you in some capacity, make sure it's the right person, whoever it is. I would go to, I would go to a doctor that's, that's not great, right? Like, you know, I, I think we need to just always be mindful that 
we got it everywhere just because you have a license does not mean that you are the most ethical and, and best choice. And let's be clear, this is an allegation. We don't know that any of this is true. I mean, Elon <laughs> Musk is, listen, Elon Musk is not the most uh, reliable source when making allegations. So we don't know that this law firm did anything wrong. And to Ashley's point, I think most attorneys are billing quite ethically and, and properly. So nice to cover yourself there. That was good. <laughs> good catch. <Okay. laughs> Our next topic, uh, we're going to go to high school in Texas. There's a high school student in Texas who's actually in trouble because the school says his hairstyle violates the district's dress code. Yeah, Ron. So some of our listeners may be following the story about Daryl George, who's a black high school student in Texas who was suspended at the end of August because of how he wears his hair. Officials said that his hair violated a district dress code mandating that a male student's hair not extend at any time below the eyebrows or below the earlobes. While in suspension, um, Daryl and his family claim he hasn't been treated too well either. He's had to sit on a stool for eight hours in a cubicle, and that has apparently caused bad back pain. After all this has happened, his family filed a lawsuit against Governor Greg Abbott, other state leaders and school officials, alleging that his locks are an expression of cultural pride and that his suspension is a violation of a new state law prohibiting schools and employers from discriminating against people with hairstyles that are commonly or historically associated with race. The law is called the Crown Act, and it actually went into effect a day after the school suspended Daryl. There have been further developments um, this past week when Daryl was actually removed from his school and transferred to a disciplinary school program The school claimed that he has engaged in chronic or repeated disciplinary infractions, violating the standards of student conduct. Not surprisingly, the school district superintendent said that his placement in this disciplinary program had nothing to do with his hair or the lawsuit that his family filed. And they also claimed that the school's dress code does not conflict with the new law. Understandably, the family believes that this is racism and has concerns about him attending the new school, which they say is designated for students with severe behavioral issues. Um, Rich, we've covered uh, this type of story before with respect to um, the way in which students and others wear their hair in various contexts, including in schools. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's 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 a disproportional rule because when you look at any kid, go to any high school right now in the United States, you'll see, I don't know, ten percent of the girls with different color hair. Right, that's a trend these days: red hair, blue hair, green hair. And you know, I don't think they are subject to the same rules uh, necessarily as this African American is. So, yeah, I think you know, listen, I support having rules in place in schools. I think some of the dress policies are out of whack and they do. There is a correlation between how you dress and how you succeed. I believe in that. Right. On the, by the same token, these are kids. They're in high school. Give them some self-expression. The way they dress is uh, has a lot to do with how they express themselves. And particularly among, um, you know, a lot of brown and black people, that is part of their his- their history and part of their culture. And it is intertwined with how they see themselves. And if you put laws and rules in place that um, don't allow them to express themselves, that actually has an impact on people psychologically. So, you know, I, I, I support the Crown Act and uh, we're, we're actually 
possibly going to have some of the attorneys on, on our next show on it. But um, Ashley, what are your thoughts? This is an issue in Chicago as well. I mean, there's lots of examples of this happening locally. And I'm sure you've covered that in your time uh, at city council. Yeah, no, there, this is something that I think it's, it's completely race based. I think that it is beyond um, expression. I think that if we actually flip it and we look to people who are not of, you know, a person of color or marginalized community and look to some of the trends that they have historically picked up and done themselves, there's not the same consequence. This is a very backwards, um, trying to keep things undercover uh, way of discipline. And it has huge consequences. It's not just psychological. It's it's actually saying you as you are, although it's not dangerous to the school, which I think is important Right at the end of the day, you as you are, we do not accept that expression, that freedom of expression. We do not accept who you are. You need to fit an identity specific to what we want. And, and I think that is really problematic it doesn't surprise me that it's coming out of Texas. Texas is the leader of problematic things. They are not on our grid. I think we need to talk about Texas getting out. But, uh, it's a whole other conversation. I think this is this is very, very serious. And it is dehumanizing at the end of the day. Um, I would I would never want uh, my future children, if I were to have children, to have to experience something that is not harmful, but is limiting their ability to actually be comfortable in their own skin. And it's really important, especially as a Latina, that, that we are able to uphold and, and keep our uh, culture, not at the expense of not fitting someone's identity and not, and not being harmful to anybody. I think that's that that should be actually embraced. And Jay, ironically, what this young man went to Barber County High School. Right. I think, you know, I think uh, I found that the most ironic part of this entire story that the high school was named Barber Community High School or something crazy like that. Or young man, just let him go to school, leave him alone. Our next topic uh, involves a, a defendant who was convicted of criminal conspiracy, but now wants a new trial because he says his attorney used artificial intelligence to write the closing argument. And he says and that's just, wrong. Yeah, Ron, this just, is not just any defendant. He's a member of the Fugees, rapper Pross Michelle. So, um, so this story is our last story of the grab bag. So earlier this year, Pross Michelle was found guilty of numerous counts of criminal conspiracy, including a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government. He had been accused of funneling money to a Malaysian fugitive for political campaigns, as well as making false statements in connection with the conspiracy. So Michelle's now hired a new lawyer, and earlier this week, he filed a motion demanding a retrial on the basis that his last attorney had allegedly relied on an AI program to write what has been characterized as a damaging closing argument. Apparently, this closing argument made some frivolous arguments and ignored some critical weaknesses in the government's case. Um, Michelle also claims that there was actually an admission of guilt and allegedly the argument failed to make the strongest and most obvious argument in Michelle's favor, um, that there was no direct evidence that Michelle or anybody else had acted at the direction or control of the Chinese government, which was a pivotal issue in the case. To make matters even worse, Michelle claims that his former attorney had a financial stake in the company that was behind the AI technology that was used. And apparently, um, Michelle's trial was reported as the first trial to ever use generative AI. But the show must never nevertheless go on. So even though he's demanding a retrial, he is still... Uh, making appearances with the Fugees who are touring this fall. So maybe Rich, you and I should try to see the Fugees um, before he 
Maybe he may go to jail for a long time. You never know what may happen, or he may end up um, winning this time around. But um, very interesting case, Rich. We've covered this story before on the show about bad uses of AI in the legal context. How lazy do you have to be, people? We're talking about bad lawyers earlier. How damn lazy do you have to be? We're not talking about some like low-level case. This is a it's a very uh, highly visible defendant, right? A member of one of the most uh, famous, you know, hip hop uh, groups of the '90s, and this guy's relying on AI. This is not some rookie lawyer. He represented like Snoop Dogg and 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 Biggie in the past. My favorite part of the alleged bad lawyering, Dave, is that he misappropriated lyrics from a Fuji song. He used a uh, P Diddy song, and by the way, he didn't use some obscure P Diddy song. He used like the most famous P Diddy song. I'll be missing you. Like, again, how lazy. Let me, he's on the way to court and he thinks, let me just pick the first hip hop song that I, as a white lawyer, can think of. Oh, I'll be missing you. And I'll just, I'll just use that in trying to uh, persuade the jury. I mean, man, if this is true, this is really bad lawyering and kind of embarrassing and worthy of a, uh, of a new trial, in my opinion. Um, Dave, uh, not a good day on legal face off for, for lawyers, maybe. Right. I was going to say, yeah, this is strike three. So my, so my first thought was when I read this story was I could be an attorney, right? If I could do that, I could easily be an attorney, probably make a lot more money. And I could do all these. I could charge people $90 million more billing. The second thing I thought about was if you're the defendant and you're sitting there listening to these final arguments that are going to try to keep you out of jail and you know that your attorney doesn't know what you're doing, what do you what power do you have? You know, you're like sitting there getting caned by your own attorney, right? And you're just getting pounded. And you're like, what is he talking about? Like, I'd be like, Look, what the hell are you talking about, right? You're nah. you're putting me into jail. You're making me sound guilty. So what rights do I have as a defendant when my attorney has completely gone off his meds and doesn't know what he or she is talking about and is putting me into a worse position for what I hired them to protect me against? Not good. Ashley, last word on this bit of lawyering for you. And then we're going to go around the horn with our end discussion. Um, you know, it is, I, I agree. I was, I was thinking, I didn't think this at the time, but now I'm um, hearing everything. I was like, man, Dave's definitely not going to like appreciate attorneys. <laughs> he's he's going to be doing his own thing from now on. Uh, he's really not trusting us. I think it's really important. Do your homework, know who you're, who you're going to have represent you. And it's really unfortunate to answer your question in the shortest way. It's an ineffective assistance of counsel, and you do not uh, really have a remedy unless there's something that the judge does in that instant um, until much later. So really know at the outset who you're, who you're uh, having protect you. It's really All right. To wrap up, the Fugees are uh, one of my favorite bands, like I said, from the 1990s. <laughs> Going to get to know our guests a little bit, go around the horn and tell us your favorite. I won't limit it to hip hop, although uh, there's some great hip hop from the 90s. But just tell us your favorite band, music band, or I guess artist from the 90s. Ashley, as someone who was just maybe born in the 90s, tell us, maybe not, maybe you were already even born yet. Tell us your, uh, 90s, your favorite 80s. artist from the 90s. Ooh, favorite artist from the 90s. Um, I feel like I was probably most impacted by um and sync at, at the night, but like I really mm. had a new appreciation for, uh, especially as I got older, um, 
trying to think of like Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill is a big for me. Um, of the Fujis. All right. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Hochberg, favorite. You were just born in the early to mid 90s. Tell us right. uh, as a young man, your favorite, most impactful music of the 90s. I just look a lot older than I actually am. So I'll, I'll be consistent. And I always play It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls. I don't know what, what uh, year they're in. And I always say that they're one of the top. <laughs> that was the 80s. That was like that was the early 80s, too. Huh? That's all right. Come on. So I'm staying consistent. I'm staying. I'm, I'm retro. I'm staying. Cons- I'm vintage, right. whatever you want to call it. I'm sticking with the Weather Girls. It's Raining Men. It's one of the top five songs of all time. Uh, Ron Brown, let's try all, this all over again and emphasize the word '90s for you. Who are you a fan of back in the back in the day, back in the Clinton era? Uh, the '90s. It was still Bruce Springsteen. Still a big uh, Bruce Springsteen fan. Ooh. He was still going strong in the 1990s. Wow. Oh, the, uh, the that was Human Touch. Human Touch and Lucky Town era. Very yeah. good answer. We love that on this show. Tina, yeah. you've got a host of answers for the 90s, but pick one. I do. I do. We could do like hours of a show just talking about 90s music. I have to say two of my favorite bands out of the 90s were Matchbox 20 and Collective Soul. Ooh. And Fuji's. I'd say my favorite song of theirs is their version. I mean, they had a lot of great stuff, but my favorite song of theirs was their version of Killing Me Softly with his song. Right. One I time. thought that was amazing. Two times. My favorite band of the 90s is still going strong. Just saw them recently. The Immortal uh, Pearl Jam, of course. You know, no one even touched on the grunge era in the 90s, but that was my favorite. Um, but good era. And uh, maybe we'll edit this to play us out with some uh, some Fuji's. Ron Brown, that's your cue to, to sing some Fuji. No, to, to yes, wrap sir. us up here. <laughs> Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us on Legal Face-Off, and thanks to our guests, Paul Stefan, Ashley Alvarez, and David Hochberg, and our earlier guests, Jennifer Kindler, Gabe Roth, and James Wadikas, and our producers, Lisa Stigall and Ben Anderson. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and to share to the Legal Face-Off podcast. And if you enjoy it, please rate it a well-deserved five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Ron Brown. And we will talk to you in a few weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.